Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s when communism was all the rage. Yeah, many countries around the world were were falling for the lure of everything being fair for everyone. The problem with that thinking is that, first of all, this goes against human nature. <laughs> and, and we want to continue to improve and be better than the next guy, right? That's just human nature. There is always a level of competition uh, within us, you know, some stronger than others. <laughs> but, but second, you can, you can never bring you know, everyone up to, to uh, be equal with, with one another. You, you always have to bring everyone down to try to achieve some semblance of, of everyone being equal. But thirdly, there are always those that will take advantage of the situation and take control and power. I mean, they may say everything is equal, but just like George Orwell's 1984, some are just more equal than others. <laughs> Communism will always fail for these and, and other reasons. And we saw this with the USSR. Communism gained a strong uh, foothold in the world during the first half of the 20th century. Uh, this according to ThoughtsCo.com and Jennifer Rosenberg. And she writes, with one third of the world's population living under some form of communism in the 1970s. However, just a decade later, many of the major com communist governments around the world toppled. That brought, a, brought uh, about this, uh, what brought about this collapse? She says, well, first, cracks in the wall. By the time Joseph Stalin died in March of 1953, the Soviet Union had emerged as a major in, uh, industrial power. Despite the reign and, of terror that defined Stalin's regime, his death was mourned by thousands of Russians and brought about a general sense of uncertainty about the future of the communist state. Soon uh, following Stalin's death, a power struggle ensued for leadership of the Soviet Union, and Nikita Khrushchev eventually emerged the victor, but the instability that had preceded his ascent uh, to the premiership had emboldened some anti-communists within the Eastern European satellite states. Uprising in both Bulgaria and Czechoslovakia were quickly uh, quelled, but one of the most significant uprisings occurred in East Germany. In June of 1953, workers in East Berlin staged a strike over conditions in the country that soon spread to the rest of the nation. The strike was quickly crushed by East German and Soviet military forces and sent a strong message that any dissent against communism, uh, communist rule would be dealt with harshly. Nevertheless, Unrest continued to spread throughout Eastern Europe and, and hit a crescendo in 1956 when both Hungary and Poland saw massive demonstrations against communist rule and Soviet influence. Soviet forces invaded Hungary in November of 1956 to crush what was now being called the Hungarian Revolution. Scores 
of Hungarians died as a result of the invasion, sending waves of concern throughout the Western world. And for a time being, the military actions seemed to have put a damper on anti-communist activity. Just a few decades later, it would start again with the Solidarity Movement. The 1980s would see the emergence of another phenomenon that would ultimately chip away at the Soviet Union's power and influence. The Solidarity Movement, championed by the Polish activist Lech Walesa, emerged as a reaction to policies introduced by the Polish Communist Party in 1980. And in April 1980, Poland decided to curb food subsidies, which had been a lifeline for many Poles suffering through economic difficulties. Polish shipyard workers in the city of uh, of Gnetsk uh, decided to organize a strike when, when petitions for wage increases were denied. And the strike quickly spread across the country, with factory workers all over Poland voting to stand in solidarity with the workers. Strikes continued for the next 15 months, with negotiations ongoing between the leaders of the Solidarity and the, and the Polish communist regime. Finally, in October 1982, the Polish government decided to order full martial law, which saw an end to the Solidarity Movement. Despite its ultimate failure, though, the movement saw a foreshadowing of the end of communism in Eastern Europe. And then came Gorbachev. In March of 1985, the Soviet Union gained a new leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev was young, forward-looking, and, and, and reform-minded in some ways. He knew the Soviet Union faced many internal problems, not the least of which was an economic downturn and a general sense of discontent with communism. He wanted to introduce a broad policy of economic restructuring, which he called perestroika. However, Gorbachev knew that the regime's power, powerful bureaucrats had often stood in the way of economic reform in the past, and he needed to get the people on his side to put pressure on the bureaucrats and thus introduce two new policies. Glasnost, which of course means openness, and Demokostroska, which is uh, de- demo, uh, de- democratization, basically. They, they were intended to encourage ordinary Russian citizens to openly voice their concern and unhappiness with the regime. Something had to be done. He, he could see the writing on the wall. Gorbachev hoped the policies would encourage people to speak out against central government and, put, and thus put pressure on the bureaucrats to approve his in, intended economic reforms. The policies had their in, intended effect, but they actually soon got out of control. When Russians realized that Gorbachev would not crack down on their, op, their, their newly won re, uh, freedom of expression, their complaints went far beyond mere discontentment with the regime and the bureaucracy. The, the whole concept of communism, its, its history, its ideology, and effectiveness as a system of government, well, that came up for debate. These um, democratization policies had, had Gorbachev extremely popular with, with both Russia and abroad. And it was falling like dominoes. When people all across communist uh, Eastern Europe got wind that the Russians would do little to, to quell dissent, they began to challenge their own regimes and, and work to develop uh, pluralist systems in, in their countries. One by one, like 
dominoes, Eastern Europe's communist regime began to topple. The wave started with Hungary and Poland in, in 1989 and soon spread to Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Romania. East Germany, too, was rocked by nationwide demonstrations that eventually led to the regime there to allow its citizens to travel once more to the West. Scores of people across the, the, the border and both East and West uh, Berliners who had not had contact in almost 30 years gathered around the Berlin Wall, dismantling it bit by bit with pickaxes and, and other tools. The East German government was unable to hold on to power and the, the reunification of Germany occurred soon after. And in 1990, one year later, in December of 1991, the Soviet Union dis, uh, um, uh, disintegrated and, 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 and ceased to exist. It was the final death knell of the Cold War and marked an end of communism in Europe, where it had been established 74 years prior. But China is not Europe. In an um, article from the Washington Post, Josh Rogan says the, Ju- the July 1st anniversary of Hong Kong's 1997 handover to China from British rule used to be a day of celebration in the city. Now it is morphed into a morbid reminder of Hong Kong's tragic decline under the ever-worsening repression brought on by Beijing. One might think that Chinese authorities, having quashed the pro-democracy protests that erupted in 2019, would ease up. After all, they've shuttered all free media, neutered judicial independence, destroyed civil society, and suppressed all political opposition. But since last year, the Chinese government has ramped up its effort to snuff out Hong Kong's autonomy and, and Hong Kongers' rights, even while exploring its authoritarianism around the world. Many have written off Hong Kong, but paying continued attention is crucial because it tells us something important about the character of Xi Jinping's government. For the Chinese Communist Party today, too much repression is never enough. China is becoming more embroiled uh, and emboldened. Uh, That spells danger for Taiwan and the rest of the world, unless the lessons of Hong Kong are learned. In the the early 1990s, the the West was swept up in the euphoria of the post-Cold War era, like we were talking about. We fundamentally failed to internalize the lessons of the, 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 the Tiananmen Square massacre and and what it told us about the brutality of the Chinese Communist Party. And it, this is actually what uh, Representative Richie Torres uh, said. He's a member of the uh, House Select Committee on, the, on CCP. Quote, we must not repeat that mistake for Hong Kong. End quote. It's no coincidence that Hong Kong authorities have gone out of their way to shut down any reference to the 1989 massacre of the student protesters in Tiananmen Square. Many Hong Kongers were jailed and charged with inciting a riot for simply lighting candles in June 4th vigils and commemorating the Tiananmen victims. 
One of those imprisoned was Jimmy Leai, the, the former head of the largest independent Hong Kong media outlet. Uh, it was called Apple Daily. Leai, a 75-year-old, uh, already uh, finished serving 14 months in prison for daring to recognize a, a moment in history that's embarrassing to the CCP. He is now serving an additional five years and nine months on trumped up fraud charges. He, he could go on trial again as early as this September under Hong Kong's uh, pernicious national security law, which the authorities apply liberally to hand down harsh prison sentences to any opponents uh, of the crackdown. Now, Leai is one of many journalists charged with crimes such as sedition, just for telling the truth about what's going on in Hong Kong. The reporters aren't the only ones, though. According to Hong Kong's uh, Democracy Council, the authorities have jailed more than 1,500 political prisoners since 2019, half of whom are under the age of 25. The CCP's efforts to shut down any inkling of criticism have reached a high level of paranoia. For example, Hong Kong authorities are shutting down a child's clothing retailer called Chicky Duck, <laughs> which they accused of advocating violence because the stores displayed pro-democracy artwork and protest messages. The government, the Chinese government is also going after anyone overseas who declares to criticize its Hong Kong policies. In June, Hong Kong's former chief executive publicly demanded that the British police investigate an event to publicize Sheep Village. It's a collection of children's books about the democracy movement written by activists. The host regretfully canceled the event. Beijing is also trying to snuff out musical criticism of its Hong Kong's policy in Western countries. This this past month, the distributor of the protest song Glory to Hong Kong pulled it from Spotify and other streaming services before it was restored after widespread public backlash. Quote, Hong Kong doesn't matter just for itself, Mark Clifford, president of the Committee of Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation, told him. China is already trying to draw red lines and parameters for what we in free societies can do and discuss. 31 U.S. Senators wrote an open letter pledging that the United States and other countries will hold the CCP and the Hong Kong government accountable for their destruction of Hong Kong's freedom, autonomy, and rule of law. It's past time for the U.S. government and Congress to back up those words with actions. The Biden administration should announce that Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee is not invited to the November meeting of the Asia-Pacific Economic Council in San Francisco because the United States has sanctioned him for human rights abuses in Hong Kong. The U.S. government also must do more to protect Hong Kongers from the long arm of China's transactional uh, repression when they are on American soil. The most important lesson the world must learn from the tragedy of Hong Kong relates to Taiwan. Hong Kong proves that Beijing proposal of one country, two systems is a delusion and that any promises that Xi makes uh, regarding Taiwan's continued autonomy under a re reunification are worthless. Xi's China is a totalitarian regime that 
that seeks nothing less than total control of China. And everything it sees as part of China, including Hong Kong and Taiwan, that pattern is undeniable, and we ignore it at our own peril. You see, China is is following what other communist countries have done throughout history. I mean, they, they are imploding. It's really what they're doing. And when they feel things slipping away, they try to hold on tighter. They try to grip things even harder. And from Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire, he says, China, you've been told, is a rising power. Soon, you've been, you've been told they'll surpass the United States as the center of a new world order. Their annual gross domestic product averaged 9% growth from 1989 to 2022. Their standing military has 2 million active personnel. Their tentacles reach into Africa, the Middle East, and South America. The real story of China is far, far scarier because China is a power in a state of inevitable collapse. The only question is when and how much damage they'll do before the Chinese regime implodes. That's because China has at least five serious problems. Problem number one, demographics. China is currently, according to geopolitical strategist Peter Zion, the, the fastest aging society in all of human history. Yeah, in all of human history. A healthy demographic chart uh, in terms of, of age looks something like a pyramid um, where you know you have you have most of the citizens will be young um, and, and a solid number of middle agers and then the very top, the fewest will be the elderly. So it's kind of like a, a kind of like a pyramid. Even in tw- in the year 2000, the warning signs were clear in China. There was a dramatic lack of people in the nine-year-olds and below group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that did not change. In 2020, the vast bulk of population is now over the age of 30. There is no supporting demographic base to, to, to pay all the bills. This is why Zion says China now has a completely terminal demographic. China currently has a birth rate of less than 1.2 per woman. It's worse in in the urban areas even. The the decline of Chinese birth rates can be attributed to to two factors. First, the Chinese government's evil one-child policy that was implemented in 1980 and ended in, in, in 2016, it resulted in three to four percent more boys than girls being born thanks to sex selective abortion and infanticide families literally killing off female babies in in the womb and and afterwards according to the chinese government itself the one child policy prevent prevented 400 million births china's population has already peaked it's now dropping the question is, as the population ages in a heavenly Marxist system, who is going to pay the bills? Well, problem number two, 
they have a, a lack of innovation. And all com- com- countries um, deal with this. You know, th- this, th- th- this problem, number two here, the lack of innovation. If, if China were free, um, you, you would know uh, an innovation, uh, a robust economy. It, it, it might be possible to stave off disaster for at least a little while. After all, the generation of new products and services might allow China to thrive economically for, for the short term, at least. And, and that would buy time for the social system to transition away from high levels of government support and, and towards something more uh, sustainable. But China has no innovation, thanks to its state-controlled you know, mechanist uh, scheme. I mean, right now, the entire Chinese economy is reliant on producing things at scale and undercutting foreign markets and stealing technology. As, as the young working population declines, well, producing things at scale becomes a lot more difficult. Cheap labor, labor basically goes away. China is trying to fill the gap right now with robotics. In, in 2021, China represented 52% of global worldwide industrial ro- robotic installation. This is a, there, there is a problem with this. And you see, if, if a robot can do a job more cheaply than a human, why produce in China at all, as opposed to somewhere that isn't geographical hellhole run by an authoritarian communist government? Uh, furthermore, China has to import all those robots, and largely from Japan. And then there's the problem of innovation. It turns out when you nationalize all innovation, well, you kill it. The solution is to rob everyone else of their IP and then try to recreate it. Some reports suggest that Chinese IP theft costs the United States up to $600 billion, with a B, dollars per year. This is an unsustainable growth model. It always leaves China IP well behind Western IP. They're, they're, they're stealing somebody else's technology and then trying to, you know, they're trying to re-engineer it. This is particularly true when it comes to microchips. When, when China manufactures a, a lot of, of basic microchips, they, they, they really do. They, they, they manufacture a lot of them. But as, as actually been, they've actually been cut off from the world's market of sophisticated microchips, all of which brings us to the third problem, debt. If you can't pay for things through innovation or through manufacturing, you got to get a lot of money from someplace else. Well, China's growth has been, well, disproportionately funded by debt. The, the, the country's debt to GDP ratio is at least 159%. That's 60% higher than the global rate, according to the S&P global rate. The nation's total stock of of, uh, corporate, household, and and government debt is now over 300% of GDP. It compromises 15% of all debt globally, according to the Institute of International Finance. Because Chinese banks are owned by the state, their decision-making is rooted in government interests rather than profitability. I mean, that's capitalism, right? That means they are probably carrying trillions of dollars in bad loans. 
As Professor Antonio uh, Grafe, uh, Grasifo writes, it is extremely unlikely that these Chinese Communist Party will be able to solve all of these problems or completely turn the economy around. The Chinese economy is too big and too complex to be able to remedy the deeply ingrained issues that have become endemic. The best, the, the best visible example of China's economic uh, hollowness, um, hollowness is is its ghost cities. You, you've probably seen pictures of them. Uh, literally cities that are just empty. China is chock filled with these so-called ghost cities. They, they include apparently up to 65 million empty units of housing. Why did this happen? Well, politicians borrowed insane amounts of money from uh, make work uh, for make work projects with the government then encouraging people to put their retirement money into buying empty shells of apartments assuring them that the prices would continue to rise uh, this has generated a looming real estate catastrophe because none of these apartments are livable but Chinese citizens keep putting their money in real estate because it allows them the illusion of actual ownership of something. And in a communist country, even the illusion of ownership is better than the reality that the government runs everything and you don't own anything. Okay, problem number four, the military. China has yet another problem, military problems. Now everyone thinks China is a powerful military country and and they kind of are but the but with china on the brink economically and demographically they might be expected to get more aggressive militarily and and again china does keep threatening um surrounding areas including most prom, uh, prominently taiwan china's two million man army is indeed huge but manpower isn't everything as we saw in the ukraine war and like Russia, the Chinese military isn't up to snuff. China relies on older, less sophisticated ships, according to the RAND Corporation. The United States has worked to control imports of chips to, into China, which means that their Chinese tech is just not as good as American military tech. The United States has even prevented Chinese companies from receiving software updates and spare parts and technological inputs from Americans. According to Chris Miller, uh, author of, of Chip War, China now lags the United States by up to a decade. What's more, China doesn't yet have the capacity to uh, project deep water power. They, they have a lot of boats in their Navy, and their Navy is effective in coastal zones, but they have no capacity to project power beyond those zones, which means that Taiwan and South China Sea are squarely in China's crosshairs because 92% of all sophisticated microchips are produced in Taiwan. 92. We could see China attempt to blockade the island with the threat of destroying, uh, you know, TSMC, Taiwan's microchip manufacturing company. And lastly, number five, it's a dictatorship thing. You, you, have, you have a problem with dictatorships underlying all of these other problems is the biggest one of all china is a one-party dictatorship while fools like thomas friedman of the new york times writes that china's one-party autocracy can 
impose the important policies needed to move a society forward. The reality is the reverse, because the dictatorship is the be-all, end-all. It can't allow the freedom of innovation uh, necessarily to, to grow the country and fix its problems. Instead, dictator Xi Jinping, in an attempt to enshrine his own power, has doubled down, seeking more economic control, and more autocracy, and greater militarism, and, and more carbon-based fossil fuels to push manufacturing growth. China right now is in very serious trouble. Does this mean that China is going to you know, break apart into uh, a million different pol- policies and, 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 and whatnot? No. But it means that the current regime is on shaky footing, and that means they are likely to get very aggressive in the near term. And of course, this in an attempt to shore up their foundation, because if they don't, that collapse is going to happen sooner rather than later. And part of the problem is, is that we as America and our debt, and we are getting into more and more debt all the time, we're we're going deeper and deeper down that road, more and more of our debt is tied with China debt. And so if they implode, and they're going to, because all communist countries do at some point, they cannot stand. It's not sustainable. They will implode. And when they do, it's going to rock us as well. And so there's something to really look at there. You know, when does this happen? How is it going to affect us in the world? Yeah, it's it's definitely something to keep an eye on, and and you may you may have your thoughts on it. I would love to hear from you. You can always do that at uncommonsensepodcast.com. And again, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.